Well, I'd like to turn your attention this morning to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. That'll be our text this morning, Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. And if you are using one of the Bibles that you'll find in the, the backs of the seat in front of you, that might be either on page 797 or 848, depending on which edition we have, uh, which edition you have there. But we're in Mark chapter 12. I do want to correct something in my prayer. I called Jerry Lori's stepfather-in-law. He was Lori's stepfather, Greg's stepfather-in-law, just to correct that. But yes, he did go to, into the presence of Christ. He, he died yesterday morning. Those of you who are on our, our uh, prayer email group uh, saw that. I trust, but uh, just continue to uphold this, the, the Stover family. It was a week kind of dominated by uh, just his, his uh, being in the hospital for them, and uh, the Lord has sustained them, but it's, been, it's been, been an adventure. So do continue to uphold them in prayer. Um, I would like to read our text and then pray for God's blessing on our time, unfolding it, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So this is the word of the Lord, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. And Sadducees came to him, Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Our God, we thank you for these words. We trust that you have life-giving power to impart into our lives through them. You say in the book of Jeremiah that your word is like a hammer that shatters a rock, and it's like fire. It does things. It does powerful things. We pray that your spirit would work through your word in our lives to do what you see needs to be done, that we would partake of your grace by faith in Jesus Christ, that we would be trusting him, that we would be delighting in you as our God through him that we'd be yielding our lives to you more and more fully as a living sacrifice of obedience. And if there are any stony hearts in this room who have yet to yield to Christ and trust him as Savior, we pray that your word indeed be like a hammer that breaks that stoniness and yields softness before you. Do more through your word among us than we could ask or imagine. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen. In his song, The Rain Keeps Falling, uh, Christian songwriter Andrew Peterson describes times of despair when the world seems dark and helpless and hopeless. He says, I tried to be brave, but I hid in the dark. I sat in that cave and I prayed for a spark to light up all the pain that remained in my heart. And the rain 
kept falling. Down on the roof of the church where I cried, I could hear all the laughter and love, and I tried to get up and get out, but a part of me died, and the rain kept falling down. Well, I'm scared if I open myself to be known, I'll be seen and despised and be left all alone, so I'm stuck in this tomb, and you won't move the stone, and the rain keeps falling. Somewhere the sun is a light in the sky, but I'm dying in North Carolina, and I can't believe there's an end to this season of night, and the rain keeps falling down. Those words stuck in the tomb, and you won't move the stone. Sometimes life feels that way. Sometimes life looks that way. Sometimes it appears that there is no answer for the undefeated juggernaut of death. And in this perspective, everywhere we look, the world is full of decay and ruin. Our bodies may feel like a kitchen timer running down to zero. And mind-numbing tragedies strike our loved ones. And the world around us more broadly burns with injustice and only seems to spin farther and farther away from stability and normalcy and righteousness. We've had two deaths in this church in the last two or three weeks. We've heard in the news, I trust, uh, tragic terrorist attacks and, and looks like a new war in Israel. Just the latest example. And in this perspective... The present life is all there is. And so hope is thin and scarce and easily crushed. In this perspective, the thought of sacrificing ourselves and laying our lives down for someone else, the thought of deferring reward and embracing a cross and taking the low place of humility and servitude seems utterly insane. It's too costly. If all we have, all we have is 70 years, or if by reason of strength, 80, that leaves far too little for us to waste on saying no to our heart's desires for glory and pleasure and comfort. But it's even worse, because if this life is indeed all there is, then this life is our only opportunity to receive the reward and glory that we'll ever have. And so everything we do get, the the fleeting vanity of it, the fact that it will be so temporary, prevents us from truly enjoying any of it. This is a perspective dominated by death. In today's text, Jesus will teach us about the, the doctrine of the resurrection. It's the third of four texts here in this section of Mark where various people, various opponents line up to approach Jesus one by one with challenge questions. He's in Jerusalem. It started back in chapter eleven twenty-seven. It goes through twelve thirty-four. But it's more profound than merely a theology lesson about the resurrection. What's more, Jesus here gives us a glimpse into his own God-centered perspective of the world. And it's a perspective that powers his own courageous march to the cross. And it is the only perspective that makes sense of his call to us who would take up our cross and follow after him as disciples. So here's the point. Christ-like servanthood knows a resurrection power that over... A resurrection life, I'm sorry, that overpowers death. I'll say that again. Christ-like servanthood knows a resurrection life that overpowers 
death. So we're going to build to this conclusion in three stages that you can kind of hear each one of them in that statement. The first stage here we're going to look at is that Jesus faces the destructive power of death. This is verses 18 through 23. Jesus faces the destructive power of death. In verse 18, we meet a Jewish group called the Sadducees. It says that the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they have a question for him. So this was a religious party that was especially predominant in the upper echelons of priestly power. Uh, They made up many or all of the chief priests in Jerusalem. And these powerful elites were rivals of the more populous group, the Pharisees. Among the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees were stricter in their recognition of holy writings. They only considered the five books of Moses to be authoritative scripture. The rest of our Old Testament, which would have then been called the prophets and the writings, they regarded in a way analogous to the way Protestants historically have viewed the Apocrypha, which is potentially helpful, but not the inspired word of God. And related to this truncated Bible that they recognize, only the books of Moses, they rejected the Jewish doctrine of the resurrection, which emerges especially in clarity later on in the Old Testament canon. You may have heard it said, the Sadducees, they deny the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Have you heard that one? That's, yeah. So that's, that's, that's how you remember who the Sadducees were on this issue of the resurrection. So the resurrection, the teaching that God will raise up his people from death in the end times, is taught most clearly later on, later Old Testament texts. Isaiah um, 26, 19, if you want to look that up later. Daniel 12, verse 2. Very clear in those texts. It also appears in various places a little bit more implicitly in the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 16. We heard this in our call to worship, 16, 9 through 11. But to the Sadducees, none of that is Holy Scripture. So here we are. The Sadducees are now taking their turn to challenge Jesus. And they want to challenge him on the matter of the resurrection. Will he take their view or the Pharisee pro-resurrection Position. They seem to suspect he's on the latter end, and so they have this kind of challenge question. Their approach is not to ask an honest-hearted question, but to stack the deck against Jesus with a ridiculous scenario that's supposed to demonstrate how incoherent the doctrine of the resurrection is. So here's what they do. First, in verse 19, they set the table by summarizing what's called the Leveret Marriage Law. You read about this in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. So given the conditions, I mean, it's it's right here. They kind of lay it out really clearly. Uh, They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, he got a man, got his brother, brother dies, leaving a wife, but no child. The man, the man who didn't die, of course, must take the widow, that's his sister-in-law, and raise up offspring for his brother. Um, ostensibly this brother is unmarried already, so he's free to marry this sister-in-law. And the first child, as it says in Deuteronomy 25, uh, belongs to the deceased brother. The first child is in the name of the deceased brother. This is a way of perpetuating the dead brother's name and descent in Israel. Because in the Old Testament, genealogy was a very important vehicle for God's covenant purpose with his people. So this leveret marriage law is kind of a guardrail, a way of keeping families on the road in case of unforeseen disaster, a brother dying with no children. But notice the rhetorical power of how they do this. They say, teacher, Moses said. 
They are about to use the law to put pressure on the doctrine of the resurrection. They're trying to show that in certain circumstances, the law calls for remarriage after death. And that, that remarriage creates a logical problem with expecting the dead to be raised. So then in verses 20 to 22, they tell this scenario of a woman, poor unfortunate woman, who plows through seven husbands, all brothers, and each one, number two through seven, is trying to fulfill this leveret marriage law, and they all fail. Everyone dies. No one produces a child. Now, it's a ridiculous scenario. I mean, why not just describe any garden variety death and remarriage? You could make the same point with just any couple where, where the husband dies and then they remarry. Well, whose wife, whose husband, wait, <laughs> whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Why this ridiculous, like, seven-person uh, train wreck? Well, I think it, using seven brothers creates an especially messy pileup at the end in the resurrection. It creates this, especially like, oh my goodness, what a mess we have on our hands. How's God going to solve that if the dead are raised? Also, there's a Jewish book called Tobit that was written between the Old and New Testaments that tells of a story like this. Seven brothers who married the same woman and all died, all in succession like this. So it's possible they're alluding to a story that would have been known by all of them, kind of a familiar story in the background. But whatever the case, the gotcha question, their big punchline is in verse 23. They've been building to this the whole time. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? In other words, if marriage is permanent, and we know that God at least sometimes, in certain conditions, commands remarriage after death, how can death not be final? Notice what a bleak and sad litany of death the Sadducees have presented us. It reflects an outlook on the world in which there is no room for resurrection power. It's death, 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 death. And then for good measure, verse 22, they have to say, last of all, the woman died. Eight deaths. It's just this parade of death. And in their view, that's it. Isn't it obvious that death has to be the end? Jesus, what could be your answer to all this death? this macabre parade of funerals. So the Sadducees represent a kind of skepticism toward the resurrection that's rooted in a godless view of the world. They claim to believe in the God of Moses. They claim to follow him. But where is he in this story? Kind of the point of the story is like, what's God going to do with that? That's kind of the point of their story. Where is God? In this scenario, death reigns free. And if we're honest, sometimes life does feel and look this way, just a cascade of death upon death. Again, loved ones die. Relationships fray and near rupture or reach a point of rupture. Opportunities that we thought we would always have may close permanently. And it feels like something is lost, something has died. Bottomless darkness looms and wars and rumors of war threaten untold degrees of carnage and ruin in the world. Now, I'm not condemning any celebration of Halloween, but sometimes the aesthetics of Halloween are simply demonic. And imagine driving down a road during this month when everyone's getting out there, they're demonically inspired kind of Halloween decorations, and you just see a, a neighborhood where house after house is decked out with these dark and grim celebrations of the grave. And it almost feels like this is the Pharisee's story. This is their view of life. It's just death after death. This is life in the absence of the resurrection. So here we have Jesus facing this problem, the destructive power of death. 
Are we hopeless in the face of all this death? Are the Sadducees right about the intractable power of this dread enemy? Well, I think you know the answer. The second stage of our argument is Jesus affirms the resurrection power of God. Jesus affirms the resurrection power of God. This is verses 24 to 27. Now, these verses give us Jesus' response. And he starts and ends in verses 24 and 27 with his conclusion. That's the bookends, which is, you're wrong. You're very wrong. And in the middle, verses 25 to 26, he gives his argumentation. Are they wrong? Of course they're wrong. Why? Verse 24, two levels of ignorance. They know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, what's amazing about claiming that they're ignorant of the scriptures is that he's about to appeal to Exodus, one of the books of Moses, part of their shared common ground of authoritative scripture. In other words, he's going to accept their limitation for the sake of argument and say, nevertheless, you missed what was in the scripture, what even Moses taught. But then why, why not stop at scriptures? In verse 24, why doesn't he just say, if the reason is that they misunderstood scripture, he's going to show them that they have. Why doesn't he just say, isn't this why you're wrong? You don't know the scripture. Why add to that, you also don't know the power of God? Here's why. We're about to see that Jesus' critique is not that they've missed some arcane grammatical detail of the scriptures. It's that they have missed the character of the God that these scriptures reveal. That's the point. They have missed God in the scriptures. So let's see what he means. Getting into his argument, verse 25, Jesus plays defense. Verse 26, he plays offense. So in verse 26, he addresses the puzzle they gave him, the, the scenario about uh, remarriage and the resurrection. And his answer is that death and resurrection create a break, a discontinuity that ends the relevance of marriage. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. People don't get married in the life to come. Which also implies, if it's a real answer to the Sadducees' question, it implies that death is also a pair of scissors that cuts off every marriage from this life. Every marriage has an expiration date. It's death. In the life to come, people don't marry. Rather, he says, they're like angels in heaven. Now, what on earth does that mean? That's something that you could take and run in a lot of different directions with. In what sense are we like the angels in heaven? But based on broader biblical teaching, he's not saying that the future life is immaterial rather than material. He's not denying the embodied experience of the resurrection. Neither is he saying that in the resurrection we become sexless. Because our maleness and femaleness is part of who we are as human beings. It's part of God's original, very good creation. We can't be human without being men and women. And so, so when humanity is perfected in the life to come in the resurrection, maleness and femaleness will not be excluded from that. Rather, we're like the angels in that we live permanently without any need to reproduce. There's no longer any need to have children to perpetuate our existence in the world. Childbearing is one of the primary reasons for marriage. It's the pressure that creates the need for the leveret marriage. How are we going to perpetuate this name? How are we going to keep things going? But in the wake of death's final death, that need expires. We live forever. There's another reason why marriage has a temporary role confined to this life. And that reason is it is a type. 
It is a shadow representing a greater reality, which is Christ's union with his church. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound. Marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when Christ returns in the end, we read in Revelation 19 about this return being associated with the marriage supper of the Lamb. He consummates his marriage with his bride, and he perfects his union with us. And when the true substance comes, the shadow will pass away. So in this life, it is good and godly to enjoy marriage for the good that it is. God wants us to do that if we're married. Enjoy marriage for the good that it is. But even more ultimately, let it point your heart to this ultimate Christ church union. And if you love your spouse and you're sad at the thought that your marriage will end and in the resurrection you won't be married anymore, maybe it's a consolation to you to consider that when you and your Christian spouse are glorified with Jesus in the resurrection, even though you won't be married anymore, your love for one another will be far better and purer than it ever could be in this life. Even as brothers and sisters in Christ, you ever grieve at how imperfect your love is for your spouse and it I'm sure you grieve at how imperfect your spouse's love is for you. You will love your spouse infinitely better than you ever could in this life when we're resurrected and glorified with Jesus. So there's Jesus' defense against the the challenge. You can't apply the norms of this world to the world to come. In the resurrection, we have a greater break than you realize. So then in verse 26, he goes on the offensive. Now he says, let's talk about the resurrection and why it's eminently true and biblical. He says in verse 26, this is really the heart of the passage. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's quoting Exodus 3, the passage we read a moment ago in our scripture reading, where Moses meets with the Lord at the burning bush. And Jesus, again, he's appealing to undisputed scripture. This is part of the books of Moses. Everyone agrees this is the word of God. We have to stop, though, and ask, how does this argument work? What is Jesus getting out here? What is it about the way that God names himself here? This is Exodus 3, verse 6. What is it about the way that God names himself that points to the resurrection? Now, you'll often hear interpreters pointing their attention to the verb am, here, as in I am the God of Abraham, etc., and specifically to the fact that it's the present tense. Not that God was their God, but now they're dead and gone forever, but that God still is their God, hence they're still alive. On this reading, the moral of the story is twofold. Number one, yes, the resurrection is true. And two, this is why all the little details of scripture, like verb tenses, are inspired by God and theologically significant. Now, both of those conclusions are totally true. I won't dispute either of those conclusions. Amen to both. The resurrection is true. All the details of Scripture matter. But still, to point to the verb am as the hinge of Jesus' argument is to miss the point. Why do I say that? Because both in the original Hebrew of Exodus 3.6 and in the Greek of Mark 12.26, there is no verb. There is no verb. What do you mean? The Greek can sometimes do this. I, the God of Abraham, is what it literally says, where am is implied. We sometimes do this very informally, colloquially in English. We'll say, you the man. You the man. What do we mean by that? We mean you are the man. It's implied, but we don't say it. 
And, and it's a little bit more of a casual usage. It's more, it's more frequent and mainstream in Hebrew and Greek to talk that way. So it's not wrong for our English uh, translators to put the am in there. It's, it's a good rendering. But on the other hand, it's hard to imagine Jesus hinging the entire argument on the tense of an implied invisible verb. Rather, instead of the am, I point your attention to the of. The of. What is God doing in Exodus 3? We read, again, John read this earlier. We read God addressing Moses in Exodus 3. What is he doing here? He's introducing himself to Moses as the covenant Lord of Israel who's about to deliver them from slavery. And his lordship of Israel is rooted in the covenant that he made with their fathers in Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in drawing near to these three successive generations of men, he made himself their God. And he made them his people. This is signature covenant language. In fact, later on in Exodus 6, 7, he'll say, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. These are the covenant words. You're my people. I'm your God. So Jesus is pointing to this of relationship. Who is the Lord to Abraham? Who is the Lord to Isaac and to Jacob? He's their Lord and God. He has joined himself to them in this covenant bond. He's baptized them into this ocean of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, what does that mean in terms of implications? Well, God is the creator. God is the all-powerful life giver who brought into being all that exists, who continues to sustain its moment-by-moment existence through the word of his mouth. So he's saying, if Sadducees, if you knew the power of God, then you would know that when God tells the people, I am the God of you, your God, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can break that bond. You are mine forever. And no one and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. When God makes himself the God of you, death cannot have you. That's exactly why Jesus closes his argument with a strong statement in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's what it means for him to be the God of somebody. For God to become your God is an absolute and bulletproof assurance that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God, says Paul in Romans 8. And then he continues to say, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very Christ we meet in this text. So to know Jesus is to own this creature-proof covenant love of God that nothing can disrupt, even death itself, who calls himself the God of you and me. He's the God of the living. He doesn't lose people. The grave grabs them, but it can't hold them. And this is why the Sadducees are so blamable for missing the resurrection, even from the books of Moses, where it's not explicit. It's true, it's not explicit, the doctrine of the resurrection. But it's, the problem is not that they fail to notice a verb tense. It's that they fail to know the omnipotent, sovereign, life-giving God who draws near to his people in covenant, who's revealed in every page of these scriptures. If you know this God and you know his covenant bond, there can't not be a resurrection. 
Does it seem implausible? Well, well, it's certainly supernatural. It's certainly a radical break from anything we've ever seen in this life. But if God is who he says he is, can it be any other way? So the moral of the story here is not pay attention to verb tenses in the Bible. Of course, we should read the Bible carefully and notice small details. Often they can be important hinges that determine meaning. And every dotted I and every cross T is really inspired by God and trustworthy. Amen to all that. But there still exists a dangerous possibility that we might search the scriptures looking for minutiae and details rather than the character of God and his saving covenant. But Jesus is actually training us here how to read the Bible. We read the Bible noticing the smallest details and asking the biggest questions. If you can hold those two together, that would be a really good method for Bible reading. Notice the smallest details while asking the biggest questions. Who is God? What is he up to in the world? What does he do for his people? What does it mean for him to save us and how does he do it? How has he revealed himself in Jesus Christ and how has he shared himself in the Holy Spirit? What is his will for our lives and what should we hope for in the world to come? These are the big questions that scripture is mostly answering. The details matter, but only as a means to rightly knowing God. Because didn't Jesus himself say in John 17, verse 3, what is eternal life? He's praying to the Father. He says, it's to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And God is like a fire hose of life. We, we see in Psalm 36, 9, with you is the fountain of life. If you're connected to God and the life is flowing, there can be no more powerful force. I love the picture of a fire hose because... On the one hand, it's refreshing and life-giving. On the other hand, it's incredibly powerful. It's scary powerful. Or consider Niagara Falls. There is no stopping the life that flows to us from God in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So friends, if you're in Christ by faith, then you are an heir to this invincible, life-securing, eternal love. And if you're in the love of God, there is always hope beyond the grave there is no threat to our body no threat to our mind no threat to our loved ones to our relationships no threat to the justice and order of the world around us there is no threat in all creation that's powerful enough to stop this God's resurrection life that belongs to you and me so don't lose hope don't shrink God down be like Abraham, Paul says in Romans 4.17, who's the God that Abraham trusted? It's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the God we've trusted in coming near in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't turned to Jesus Christ to trust him and to receive in him all of your forgiveness of sin and, and to receive his righteousness as a gift and to receive covenant union with him that secures eternal life, then what are you waiting for? Come to him. Death and its tentacles have you wrapped up and it is too powerful for you. But do not be ignorant of the power of God. He offers rest and life indeed to all who come and trust his son. What a different outlook on life the resurrection can give. We may feel locked in the tomb and the stone is not rolling away, but we know that it will. We may feel like the rain keeps on falling, but we know the sun will rise. 
Nothing lost in this sin-cursed world cannot be repaid in the resurrection. So come to Jesus and know this life, know this forgiveness, know this hope. So we've seen Jesus face the destructive power of death, and then we've seen him answer and affirm the resurrection power of God, which brings us to the third stage of our building argument. Thirdly, Jesus models resurrection-powered servanthood. Jesus models resurrection-powered servanthood. And this point, you may have noticed we got all the way from 18 to 27. There's no verses left. This point is not based on any particular section of our text, but it is a comment on how our text fits into the broader context of Mark. So if you've been with us, as we've walked through kind of intermittently through Mark, especially between chapters 8 and 10, you've seen how this book unfolds Jesus' identity in a complex way. On the one hand, he's the Christ. He's the promised and anointed victorious king. He's the son of man from Daniel 7, who inherits a great and eternal kingdom over all the nations. But on the other hand, He's the suffering servant whom Isaiah prophesied. He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve, to be the least of all and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what that means is that to follow him is to assume with him the low place. It's to humble ourselves like little children and to receive life and salvation through the outstretched hand of simple trust. And it means that following Jesus is coming and walking behind him as a disciple who, like him, carries a cross. Just as he's doing in this text, he's moving ever closer to that death by which he'll atone for the sins of others. This ultimate act of humble service. Disciples of Jesus assume the low place. They pursue it. They serve. They carry a cross and expect the world's scorn. They freely give up earthly goods. But the big question is how? How does Jesus do this? How do disciples do this? How can we defer glory? How can we defer reward and defer earthly goods maybe for the rest of our entire lives? Well, in our text, Jesus hints at the answer. And the big answer is there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. When you are waiting at the airport gate, You're above your airplane. You can peer out the window and look down on your plane. When you're trying to go up, where are you trying to go when you're at the airport? You're trying to go up, right? But when that gate opens, nobody has any problem with doing that, walking downhill into the airplane, down that concourse. Why? Well, it's very simple. You know that down is the way up. If you walk, lose that few feet of elevation, go down that concourse and get in that plane, you have entered a machine that has the power to lift you up much much higher than the few feet of elevation that you're losing. And that's something like the resurrection, right? You could, you could look at what you're losing. You could look at what you're giving up, what you're deferring. But when you know you're headed toward this great reversal with Jesus, it changes everything. This gospel of Mark ends with the climactic moment of Jesus' resurrection. And in the meantime, he's marching to the cross to be the servant of all. It's only in view of the story's conclusion that this intermediate stage makes any sense. The resurrection frees Jesus to make costly sacrifices. It frees him to be humble. It frees him to accept being misunderstood and misrepresented and mistreated by wicked men. 
The resurrection frees him to take up his cross and to lay down his life. It frees him to be the last, the least, the servant of all. And so it goes with all of us who follow him. What did he say to Peter? Remember, Peter had, had to point out how much he and the other apostles had left behind to follow him. And Jesus says in chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, etc. So he's saying there is a form of recompense in this life. It's paradoxical. But he goes on and says, with persecutions and, this is the real kicker, in the age to come, eternal life. What does that do to the ledger? In the age to come, eternal life. Resurrection, y'all. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is the first fruits. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. And then afterward comes the rest of the full harvest, everyone who belongs to Christ. So if we're trusting in Jesus, his resurrection assures us we will share it too. And his resurrection confidence then can be ours as well. How do we serve? How do we sacrifice? How do we stay low and take that place like little dependent children? How do we carry a cross and accept the reproach of the world with Jesus? It's the same answer. There's a resurrection coming. Get on down there to that low place and God will lift you up in due time. How do we have hope all around when all around we see is ruin and decay and the rain keeps falling and we say with the psalmist, the cords of the grave entangle me and the snares of death confront me. What's our answer? Don't live like there's no resurrection, church. Don't view the world in this godless, Sadducee-like manner where death wins and there's no answer for it. If you live with that kind of unbelief, of course, we'll be scrambling for glory and reward and praise in this life because what else do we have? Don't we find that time after time, if you're following Christ in the Christian life, when we confront the choices that Christ calls us to make, so many times it makes no sense if this life is all there is. The path of obedience often makes no sense if this life is all there is because our heart is saying, where's my reward? I can be patient for a while, but, but come on, where's my reward? Where's my glory? Where's my vindication? Eventually, I'm going to get paid, right? I'm going to get it all back in this life. We want, we want everything now. Turn your eyes back on Jesus, church. Admire and imitate his resurrection-powered courage, his resurrection-powered patience, his steady confidence. He knew the scriptures. He knew the life-giving power of his God. And this knowledge enabled him to endure rejection and people stealing his glory and ultimately the agony of the cross. So Christ-like servanthood knows a resurrection life that overpowers death. Death does not win. And our losses in this life in Christ are not final. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he is sure to exalt us in the proper time. And this Christ-like servanthood is ours in two ways. It's, first of all, it's ours because Jesus did it for us. He put his hope in God. He went to the cross he paid for your sins and mine and the sins of all who believe. 
He conquered death on the third day. So his service is yours because he did it for you in your place. It's also yours and mine in a second way, and that is by imitation. Because we share his resurrection, because we share his God and Father, then we too can know the power of his resurrection to keep us happy and hopeful and waiting in the low place. Where else could we want to be? Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for your resurrection power for all who belong to you. We don't deserve this salvation, but in Jesus Christ, you've so abundantly poured it out on all who believe. We thank you that he went before us through the cross, trusting in you and trusting your promises and emerged from the grave victorious and has ascended into heaven where he continues to sit at your right hand interceding for us. We thank you that our resurrection is as assured as his, which already happened. And we pray that we would be a people who deeply hope in you, who know your character as the life giver, who is more powerful than anything, a people who have uh, hope and confidence in you that nothing that happens in this world can take away. And please, God, use that hope to fuel our servant hearts for one another, to fuel our willingness to be scorned for Christ in this world, uh, to continue to, to be unassuming in our childlike faith, to be quick to give all glory to you and to, to honor one another and to treat others as more important than ourselves. All the things that following Christ looks like in our lives, we pray that the hope of the resurrection would wonderfully supply us. And we pray you be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.